This is the class period, right? All right. <laughs> it's all good. We are going to be furthering our, our studies this evening in looking at uh, ancient laws and how they apply to the, the modern day, seeing that morality is not judged by what, uh, the, the, what is popular. Morality is not determined by what the progressive thoughts of a lot of society are, but basic morality is judged by the supreme lawgiver in uh, that he has set forth his uh, certain principles that are immutable. Last week we took a look at partiality. We examined the biblical data on partiality. We saw example after example of uh, the fact that, that God himself is impartial and about how he doesn't look at the outward appearance, but rather looks at uh, the heart. He doesn't care about our external qualities, but he is concerned about the, what, what character we have, about how, how the gospel promoted both Jews and Gentiles to glorify God together and about how perhaps we could uh, do a bit, a bit better job of being a unified front that uh, encourages worship together regardless of race, ethnicity, or personal preferences. And if you'll uh, you remember, I mentioned about how that topic kind of stands out among all the ones that are going to be addressed this month because that is one that has progressed for the better in, in recent years uh, as opposed to the next three topics that are going to be addressed uh, this month. The next three topics are moral issues that have regressed. Folks are uh, more than happy uh, to see these issues prevail. They've become lax on, on these issues. And it is therefore the obligation of the church to stand firm on these moral issues because God is unchanging in his views about them. In Malachi 3 and verse 6, God said, I am the Lord, I do not change. It is that God that we worship this morning, the one who we have come back to, uh, here this evening to uh, study in more in depth. That, that's the same God that created the heavens and the earth, the same God that revealed himself to Abraham and Moses, the same God that established his new covenant through the blood of his son. And because he is that same God, that same unchanging God, he has remained constant in his basic expectations over all these years. The topic of consider, consideration for this evening is once again could be a, a sensitive subject. It is what we would call uh, abortion. It is speculated that there are 40 to somewhere 40 to 50 million abortions that occur annually. That corresponds to being about 125,000 that occur on a daily basis, though I have a feeling that the number is actually higher than that. Now, once again, like I said uh, last week, every time that I teach this month, I'm going to say this. This is not political this is biblical. We're not here to talk politics. We are here to talk Bible. We're here to discuss why things are or why things are not pleasing to, to God and what the Christian's response ought to be. And we're going to try to follow a similar pattern today that we did uh, last week. We're going to look at the biblical data on this topic and see how that fits into our thinking and our actions in a modern society. Now, before we get into the scriptures, you might notice something from this list. Pretty much all the passages that we're going to look at come from the Old Testament. The New Testament really doesn't have much at all or really anything to say explicitly about the sanctity of life. Should that be a problem for us who call ourselves New Testament Christians? Does that mean that since the New Covenant was established that God's view on abortion has changed? No. 
Remember that we're looking at unchanging or immutable laws. Romans 15.4, those things written beforehand were written for our learning. Just because things uh, were not reiterated in the New Testament doesn't mean that they are now obsolete. And it is obvious that this is something that would not have changed after the establishment of the New Covenant. So once again, I hope you have your, your copies of the Word of God presence. What I say matters so very little as to compare uh, with, with what God says. So I hope we're all ready to read and learn what God has said about this. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is mainly known for containing the uh, original giving of the Ten Commandments. God is imparting his moral law to the children of Israel. In chapter 20 and verse 2, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And from there he says, you shall or you shall not. So because he has now redeemed them out of Egypt, he's now going to give his expectations for his redeemed people. These Ten Commandments are the general laws. And then he's in, in the chapter, uh, chapters following, he's going to get a bit more specific. But in a very simple way, the first passage we want to look at is Exodus 20 and verse 13. Simply he says, you shall not murder. He didn't say you shall not kill, but you shall not murder. Because there were times in Israel's history when they received divine orders to kill. That's different. What's murder? What would be what are what's entailed in murder as opposed to, to just killing? Justification. Justification. Okay, there involves uh, murder involves premeditation. Murder involves uh, unlawfulness. Um, you know, it, not justified as, as uh, some of the killings of the, of the Old Testament could be. And all the times it ends up with the, the innocent being harmed. Now, as that relates to abortion, some would say that that isn't murder. I hope we can all have, have the decent sense to know that that isn't true. But, but if there is any doubt, we're going to see more than a few examples from Scripture that that isn't the case. But first off, we start off with the simple command not to murder. This is the groundwork for all the further discussions that, that we're going to have. Murder is objectively and morally wrong. Therefore, to do so is to break God's objective moral law. Look at Deuteronomy 27. Still within the law books of, in the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy. And uh, what, uh, anyone know what, what is happening in Deuteronomy? What, what is Moses doing within uh, this book? He's given the law. He's giving the law for the second time. Uh, this is the second giving the law to the second generation of Israel before he dies and before uh, the children go on to their uh, Canaan conquest under Joshua. Now what he's doing in chapter, chapters 27 and 28 are pronouncing blessings and cursings. If you obey, you, you, you are blessed and you will be able to stay in the land. If you disobey, you'll be cursed and you will be drugged out of this land into captivity. Moses commanded uh, some to set themselves on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings. Others he set on uh, Mount uh, Ebal to proclaim cursings. And if you'll notice, there are more uh, cursings than there are blessings. God knows what most of them, the way that most of them are going to go. He knows that they're going to end up in the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, so he's making it uh, so that they cannot plead ignorance when they find themselves in those situations. 
And chapter 27, verses 14 to 26 is part of those cursings. Very simply, it says, cursed is uh, the one who does this. Look at uh, chapter 27, verse 25. It says, cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, amen. I say that there are a lot of people today who are taking bribes to slay an innocent person. Who make a living from shedding innocent blood. And don't get it twisted just because uh, they don't immediately meet the, the fruit of their labors doesn't mean that they won't. Anyone who sheds innocent blood, whether that be the blood of adults or the blood of infants, will eventually be cursed in the long run for those actions. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. Look at 2 Kings 24. In 2 Kings 24, uh, the record of, of 1 and 2 Kings is coming to an end. Babylon is now in the process of overtaking Judah, destroying it and carrying, it, uh, carrying the Jews off into Babylon to be captives. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 is going to show us exactly why that had to be, uh, had, had to be uh, done. Someone, if you would, read uh, 2 Kings 24, verses 1 through 24. So ultimately the reason that uh, Judah was carried off into Babylon was because of the atrocities done under the reign of Manasseh. Because he was responsible for shedding innocent blood. Uh, Contextually, this isn't strictly limited to the killing of children. It's included, and we're going to talk about the mass killings dedicated to the pagan gods in those days in just a minute. Uh, They're not the only innocent blood that was shed under Manasseh, but probably the majority of it. But the point is the principle here. Whenever innocent blood is shed, the Lord is not going to pardon that if not repented of. The prophet Nahum would say, Nahum 1.3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but that he will not at all acquit the wicked. He won't let those things go unpunished. He, he, He sees what's going on today. Just as in Genesis 4 and verse 10 where, where God tells Cain that his, his brother Abel, Abel's blood is crying up to him, the blood of the innocent is still crying up to God today. He's not turning a blind eye to these disgusting acts and he will act upon those things if not, if not repented of. Look at Job 31. We didn't start in Job today like we did last week, but remember that we are dealing Uh, with the age of the patriarchs. Job was probably contemporary with uh, Abraham. So this is long, long ago. But all the way back in the days of Job, uh, Job recognizes that God fashions people while still in the womb. Chapter 31, it being the last discourse of of Job with his friends, and he's going to talk about how he used to treat his servants beginning in verse 13. Someone, if you would, read Job 31, 13 through 15.
So Job says that God formed his servants and himself. Uh, he, he served his, his, his servants just like, like he was. He doesn't say that in the womb they were nothing more than a cluster of cells. He says me. He says them. He says us. That's personality. He doesn't say that he was, uh, that he was forming the womb uh, before we became people. That all he says is, is that he and his servants were at one point in the womb and that God formed them and fashioned them. And we're going to see some similar language, particularly in the Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. What do we know about Psalm 22? What comes to mind? Think about Jesus. David is the author. Uh, but verse 1 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ought to sound familiar because those are, of course, the words that Jesus spoke while uh, on the cross. And it is thought that in Jewish culture, uh, whenever one quoted a part of a psalm, they were by implication quoting the entirety of, of the psalm. So uh, as you go down, and, and you, will, we'll read, you, you could read more of the sufferings of Christ later down in, in the psalm, uh, but, but in essence, th- this whole psalm uh, can be applied and really is about Jesus, about the Messiah, about the Christ. But look at Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are he who took me out of the womb, who made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So David, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, says, uh, while I was in the womb, you, Yahweh, were my God. And in turn, Jesus is saying, while I was in my mother Mary's womb, you, my father, were my God. Are we really going to say that David wasn't a person whenever he was in his mother's womb? Are we saying that Jesus himself wasn't a person whenever he was in his, his mother Mary's womb? We see something very similar in Psalm 139. Go ahead and turn there as well. In Psalm 139, this psalm is another psalm of David, uh, and it is a very personal psalm. David is articulating all that, that God is to him and all that he has been to him from a very young age. I guess I skipped over Psalm 127. Oh, well, we'll do without it. Look at uh, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. David says, O oh, oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, and even the night shall be a light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest places of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, yet, as, uh, yet, yet there were none of, of them. Again, in the womb, David said he was fearfully and wonderfully made, verse 14. 
He was skillfully wrought or worked into shape, verse 15. Even while informed, God saw his substance, verse 16. The clear understanding from the authors of Scripture, particularly in in the Psalms, is that while still in the womb, you are a person. You are a part of God's wonderful and, and intelligent and beautiful creation. Yet many today want to destroy that beautiful creation. They want to take what God has intelligently formed and they want to say that it isn't a person and uh, swiftly destroy them while they're still in the womb. Friends, that is a sad reality, but it is uh, the reality that we are living in in this world. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon, the, the proverb writer, here is going to lay out, not six, but seven things that a loving God hates. As mentioned last week, scripture, uh, in Scripture, we are privy to the things that God likes and the things that he dislikes. Not only does he dislike these certain things, but he hates the, these things. What are those things? Like Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. He says, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false, false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. So, in the middle of these seven things that God hates is hands that shed innocent blood. We saw from Exodus 20 that we shall not murder. We saw from Deuteronomy 27 that cursed is the person who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Now, as an exclamation point, God says this is a thing that he hates. So we have a God who is morally perfect. He has set the standard for good and bad, right and wrong. And that God who is morally perfect says, I hate this thing. What should be the response of mankind? What should be the response of his people, of his creation? We should also hate this thing. We should abhor this thing. Yet many today fight for this thing. In doing so, they call that which is right wrong and that which is wrong right. Look at Isaiah 49. The rest of the passages that we're going to look at are going to come from the the writing prophets. Uh, This example here being similar to Psalm 22 and Psalm uh, 139. What do we have in Isaiah 49 is the prophet speaking of the servant of the Lord. Uh, The identity of the servant can be sort of confusing since verse 3 says, You are my servant, O Israel. And then he goes on to describe a servant that really only could fit the description of the Messiah. Uh, You can come to different conclusions, but uh, by my observations, I think that uh, the servant of chapter 49 is the same servant in chapters 52 and 53. The servant is uh, the Christ who came from the nation of Israel. Someone, if you would, read Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2. So similar to Psalm 22 and Psalm 139, this, uh, this servant, the personification of the future Messiah, says, when I was in the womb, I was me. It says, the Lord has called me from the womb, my mother, my name, uh, me, my mouth, his hand has hidden me. That's personality. 
not just a, a cluster of cells, but a living person in the womb. And again, if, if that's true for one person, then that has to be true for all peoples. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah chapter 1, this is where God uh, initially calls Jeremiah to be his, his prophet, or he commissions him to be his mouthpiece to set him over the nations, over the kingdoms of the world. Chapter 1 and verse 10, to root down, to pull up, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. But long before Jeremiah was called on this day, God had plans for him. Look at chapter 1 and verse 5. Uh, beginning in verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordain you to be a prophet to the nations. So before Jeremiah was even born, God knew him. He knew what kind of person Jeremiah was going to be. He knew that he was a person uh, who, who would be fitting to be a prophet to the nations. God knows each of those souls that have yet to be born. Yet he counts them all as being precious. Not that we're all or really any of us, are, 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 are uh, supposed to fill the role or that, that, uh, that Jeremiah did, but, but God does have a role for each of us, correct? He desires for all of his creation to willingly and cheerfully glorify their creator, and whenever we cut those lives uh, short, before they leave the womb, we are robbing them uh, of uh, that, that privilege. We're robbing God of, of the privilege of his creation, willingly and cheerfully glorifying him. Look at chapter 19 of Jeremiah. Staying within the book of Jeremiah, so many times does he, along with uh, many of the other uh, prophets, are they forced to address the evil, idolatrous practices of Israel and Judah. Among those things we, uh, was the sacrifice of their own children to these foreign gods. Look at Jeremiah 19, verses 4 through 6. God, speaking through Jeremiah, says, Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with the fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord." That this shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So they had filled the valley with Hinnom with the blood of uh, the innocents whenever they would sacrifice their sons and their daughters to Baal. There's also another god who uh, would routinely require child sacrifice. His name was Molech. And they would offer their children usually in, in one of two different kinds of ways. Sometimes they would fashion a slide, a slide from Molech's palms down to uh, slide their children down to his belly, which uh, had a fire, so they would burn them, them there. Or sometimes they would heat up his palms and then place their children in his palms to essentially fry them in his, his palms uh, with the hot metal. I think any sane person would admit that that is disgusting. Yet we accomplish the same thing whenever we murder unborn children. So what does God say about these practices? He says... Don't call this the, the Valley of Hinnom anymore, but call this the Valley of Slaughter. Remember 2 Kings 24, that when innocent blood was shed, that the Lord would not pardon it. Also notice in verse 5 that this is not something that 
entered into the mind of God. It never came into his mind that this would happen. Uh, He never desired this thing. He never asked for this thing. And he detested this thing. The same goes for today. He never intended for people to devalue life as they have. In connection to this, look at uh, Lamentations chapter 4. Book of Lamentations is written uh, again by, by Jeremiah, who is lamenting over the wickedness of Jerusalem and it now being empty uh, from its inhabitants being carried off into Babylon. In this book, Jeremiah understands that this was not an unjust work of the Lord, but it was because of their wickedness that this thing happened. So while lamenting, he's also laying the case against Jerusalem to show why all of these things happened. But we saw what they did with their children in Jeremiah 19. Now look at Lamentations 4 and verse 10. He says, The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. So those who were once compassionate women were now cooking their their, their own children. That's what it looked like whenever a society left God. When a society leaves God, the children suffer. When a society leaves God, the children are, are cast aside like, nothing, like they're nothing more than an old garment. Kind of telling for our own society, I would say. I wouldn't say that uh, America has ever really, by definition, been a, a Christian nation. But we have wandered further and further from moral principles that the murder of the innocent has now become a common thing. Final look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. In this chapter, Ezekiel is addressing a a proverb that was common among the Jews while under Babylonian captivity. They said, the fathers have have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What they mean is, our fathers sinned and that's why we're in captivity. What they mean, uh, and if that's true, then, then, then God is unjust. He is unfair. Therefore, Ezekiel, in his prophetic ministry, uh, has to come along and defend God. Look at God's response in verses 3 and 4. He says, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So, God is not unjust because it is the soul who sins that shall die. But in the process of this defense, God in verse 4 says, all souls are mine. Are we prepared to say that uh, those unborn children don't have souls? I would say it would make good sense to say that they they do. Again, we are destroying, collectively as a nation, we are destroying what God has created. He made man in his own image and thought that their creation was a very good thing. Genesis 1, 31. He has sanctified life. Life is a precious thing to God, yet mankind is doing its, its best to try to devalue that life. They are making that which is holy and good not to be. I'd also be amiss if I didn't mention Exodus chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, where we find two similar uh, stories. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh has the male ch- children killed and fearing that the Hebrew people are growing too much and are going to revolt against Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, Herod also has all the male children killed in fear of Jesus taking his throne after hearing of his birth. Do we think that the Bible portrayed those as being positive or favorable things or as disgusting acts? All right, any questions, any comments before I move on?
One of the good things about uh, Koine Greek, obviously the New Testament is written in, is that it's a very clear language. So a very clear language uses the exact same word to, to describe a child both in the womb and outside the womb. So absolutely, I, I didn't really think about that, but, uh, but absolutely. Anything else? All right, so that is the, the biblical data on the problem of abortion. The, there is, again, thing, more things we look at, but for time's sake, I would say that that is an adequate amount to, to show that while in the womb, we are still people, and to murder such is objectively wrong. So all of, of these principles from all of these ancient texts, how does that fit into a modern society? Well, it fits the same way now that it did in the day that all those things were written. The shedding of innocent blood is just as wrong now as it was in those days. Uh, we are, in, in as many ways possible, supposed to be trying to mirror God, to be godly, literally to be like God. Well, the God that revealed himself in Scripture is the God of life. In answering the Sadducees in Mark 12, 27, Jesus said that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So he is the God of life. Whenever we, whenever we try to, to destroy life or take life away, we are doing that which directly contradicts his very nature. Now, in the midst of all of this, this talking about this uh, atrocity that, that we call abortion, is there anything that we can take comfort in? There is. If you still have your Bibles open to Ezekiel 18, look again at, at chapter 18 and verse 4. It says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who... Sins shall die. So, all souls belong to God, and the soul that sins shall, shall die. That is what we have to take comfort in, that it is the soul who sins that shall die. Those millions of unborn children who are murdered never get the opportunity to sin. Because the soul who sins shall die, we know that the doctrine of original sin is false. It's a complete myth. It's a result of poor exegesis and preconceived notions. So we can take comfort in the fact that those millions of poor souls who were killed in their, their, their mother's womb are with the one that holds all souls. Also, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. We know from chapter 11 that uh, we're in the context of the infamous story of David, his sin with Bathsheba, uh, the conception of their, their baby. David's orders to let Bathsheba's uh, husband Uriah die on the battlefront. The prophet Nathan has visited David. He has convinced him of his sin, which led to David's repentance. But what happens with the child? That's what we read of beginning, beginning in verse 15 of, of 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says that Nathan departed his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's uh, wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and, and lay all, all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to, to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is now dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David rose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and ate. 
Then the servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Then he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So after the child is dead, David ceases his fasting and ceases his mourning. He is now at peace with this situation. Why? Not because he has any expectation that this child is going to come back to him, but he says, I shall go to him. David had the expectation of seeing this child once again after he passes, passed from his life to the next. Sometimes I forget that we live in a society that uh, in many ways promotes the death of innocent unborn children. And if you think about that, that very fact, it reminds us about how, how far our society uh, is from biblical principles. But, but even in those circumstances, let's be glad and take solace in the fact that those young souls are joined to the Lord for an eternity. Does that give us the right to, to take those lives away? Absolutely not. We, we are not the givers of life, so we have no right to take them away, but it's something. This has been, been again, uh, an ancient law for the modern day. Our un- unchanging God is just as opposed to abortion now as he always has been. Any comments, any questions before uh, we, we close this evening? All right, let's uh, end with a prayer. Our Father and our God, Lord, thank you once again for another day. Uh, which is a blessing from you. We thank you for the worship that took place this morning. We uh, thank you for the study that has taken place this evening. Lord, we recognize that you are the God of life and that you uh, made life and formed man from the dust of the earth and said that he was uh, very good. Lord, we uh, pray for this nation. We pray for this this whole world and the attitude towards many, towards uh, those unborn children, Lord. We ask that uh, they may see the truth of the matter and that the God that has created the heavens and the earth has also created life to be uh, sanctified and, and sacred, Lord. We thank you so much for your blessings once again. We thank you for uh, Jesus most of all, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the hope that we have through him. And it's through his name that I pray. Amen.